Good news. Look at that, look at that awesome uh, newspaper boy right there. A little picture of, hear ye, hear ye, read all about it. There is some good news among us. And as we go into this new season of looking at the Word of God in the context of Romans, we have a lot to be excited about. There is a good message that God has given us. There is a, a wonderful um, proclamation that He has shared with us in the midst of a confused, broken, um, disturbed world. Um, and I don't say that just about the world out here, but the world that we all have come from and the world that we live in and the world that we carry about within us. And uh, this next few weeks are going to be an opportunity for us to hear in many different ways the glorious message of God's gospel, um, the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, when I got saved, I, um, when, I w- when I became a believer, and from the moment I became a believer and all the way through my growing up years through high school and college and learning more and more about God, every time I, I, I got a hold of a new, a, a new truth or a new revelation from the time that I was born again to the time that um, uh, I, I started to learn about uh, how powerful His Word was, if I memorized His Word, to my experiences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Every time that I had an encounter that kind of shook my paradigm, my personality was such that I, I just went crazy telling people about it. Um, I wanted people to know because I had been changed. And I, I was fully convinced, um, uh, and, I, and I, I probably... God made me this way. I was fully convinced that everybody wanted to hear about it. That everybody wanted to hear the next revelation in my life. And the truth is, is that these revelations, salvation, um, the Word, um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know, and what comes along with it, all of these things people do need to hear about. And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, but I, I was surprised when I started to talk to people and share this good news that not everybody wanted to hear it. That not everybody had the same response. I remember sitting down with one of my family members um, shortly after I became, became a believer and I was um, um, shortly convinced that he didn't know God. And uh, it was my um, duty and my opportunity to, to, to share with him the good news, which again, I don't think that was wrong. I don't think there was anything I did was wrong. It was just that I wasn't prepared for his response. The minute that I shared with him all of the wonderful things that God had done in my life, the veins on the back of his neck started popping out. His face turned red. It was like I was talking to a, a different person. A person that who was so loving and kind in one context now was like incredibly upset with me. And all I said was, Jesus Christ has changed my life. And the very mention of Jesus and whatever baggage that carried with him, whatever backstory that was in his life was now all directed towards me. And of course, I was young and... Uh, and he was just a little bit older, and we just went after it. You know, it, the, you know, his veins popped. I got defensive. My veins popped. We popped, popped, popped. You know, it was not a pretty story. It was not, a, it was not what I thought was going to be a joyful reception of the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, you've walked, maybe some of you who are Red Sox fans, you have walked down the street um, across uh, 90, walking into the stadium, and you've got 
pretty, uh, pretty much every game that I've gone to, the man with the sandwich board who is proclaiming the good news by handing out tracts about Jesus. Anybody know who, who I'm talking about? He's just constantly handing out tracts. He's not even saying anything. He's just handing pieces of paper. And you can just watch the different reactions. You've got the wide berth. You know, people walk around him. You know, people bump into him. People get upset. People thank him. It's just a variety. I've stopped one time and I've just sat there and watched. How do people respond? And the responses are very, very different. I remember um, t- being in the, the, uh, the, the, um, the pit area of the Harvard Yard, you know, the area where the red line is, and there's performers and different people that, that, that do different things there. And we had actually gotten there at one point, and we did a drama and proclaimed the gospel, and I was sharing with a man about how much Jesus loved him and what Jesus has done in my life, and we were standing like from here to here, and he was looking at me, and he said, don't you tell me any more about Jesus. And then he goes, we're coming after you. And I'm like, we? Who are you talking about? I mean, there's just one of you. I mean, what you? But he was, I mean, literally, it was like there was a demonic uh, um, agreement in his spirit that we, we that oppose Jesus, we that oppose everything that you're saying, we don't want to hear from you, and not only that, but we're coming after you. I was like, hey, Love you, brother. <laughs> Have a great day. Next, <laughs> you know. Um, but, then I, but then I have an encounter with somebody like the man in the laundromat in Watertown. And, and um, I'm, I'm walking in. I'm actually going in to see if there's anybody that wants to hear about Jesus. I felt like God said, go and just walk around and tell people about God. And I walk in and I share the good news very simply with him. And he starts to cry. And, and he starts to tell me a story. And he said, you know, I was just praying today that God would send me some good news. And you're reminding me of what my life is about. It's very much what the Scripture says when the Scripture says that to some, this message that we present and that we live, and we don't just speak it, right? We live it. That this message that we live and speak is to some, the stench of death, and to others, the aroma of life. The very same life or words that you could share to one person, depending on where, where they position themselves and where they are in life, could be an incredible offense that you would say, hey, we are all sinners in need of God's forgiveness. And Christ has died for you. That's either death or life. And we live in a world that's constantly at odds with that. We live in a world of conflicting ideas, conflicting cultures, conflicting morals that derive themselves from different worldviews that are all meshed together. We live among it. You know what I'm talking about. You work among it. Current issues of the day become battleground conversations, especially around election time. Amen? Abortion. I can just throw out words and the hair starts to stand on the back of somebody. Abortion. Homosexuality. Environment, talking about Jesus in the workplace, proselytizing. They're all charged topics, charged with energy in our culture because we have, have, have reduced uh, living together in a tolerant society. We've dumbed it down to 
the, the, the phrase, don't, don't offend me and tell me I'm wrong. Just let's live together and not talk about what we really believe in. And if you have a strong belief about something, please don't talk about it because you might offend somebody. And definitely don't talk about God. Don't offend me and tell me I'm wrong. And we elevate the only one wrong thing to don't judge me. Or if we are really so bold to say it, God, you better not judge me. There better not be a presentation of a God. I don't want to hear about a God that will tell me that I am living wrong. Because the highest ideal that we promote within our worldview is that we should be individuals able to do whatever we want to. We have exchanged the truth for a lie. That if we give ourselves absolute freedom to express ourselves in every moral, philosophical, thought, any way we want to, that if we allow everybody to do whatever they want to do, we're all going to be happy. And the reality is that just produces chaos. That that actually undermines the very fabric and strength of what God has called us to and what he's brought to the world through his creation, his truth, and his message of hope through Jesus. The message of the cross is foolish for those who are headed to destruction, but those who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Faith, God, exclusive truth have been marginalized. They've been sequestered into church buildings, into homes. They've been moved, at least attempted to be moved out of the public square, but in reality, who has moved it out of the public square? Not necessarily society, but us, right? We can still talk. We can still live our lives. We can still live within a multicultural, multi-truth, multi-moralistic society, we can still live out the gospel if we are not ashamed of it. We have not been silenced by God. We've only silenced ourselves. And or maybe by the fear or intimidation or opinions of the culture that frames our worldview. Romans, Paul, is about taking that current context that he's living, and I'm about to describe to you what it looks like, in addressing the very same issues there that we are living with today. Romans is very contemporary, very current for how you and I are living. We also know that even though we live in this way, that many on the outside of the church are not finding life and hope in a truthless culture, are they? You live with them. You know them. They're not finding hope and truth in an everything-goes environment. They're scared of who they are. They're scared of where they're going. They're scared of who they are becoming, if they're very honest. And many of them don't even think. Many of us don't even think about it because we're too scared to think about what we think about ourselves. So we just keep moving on, hoping that everybody will like me, that nobody will reject me. And yet we're afraid to be challenged, and we're afraid to challenge so that people can actually have life, real life, not fake life, not fabricated life, not paid for life, not, not some kind of false reality of life, but real life that comes through the love of Jesus. We desperately need a church that can engage the world with wisdom, with grace, 
with truth. We need a thinking church. We need to think, church. We need a thinking church that understands doctrine, that understands why we do what we do, but not just a thinking church. We need a church filled with the Holy Spirit that thinks, that is filled with the love and power and relevance of God, that has taken the truths of the Scripture and have allowed the truths to transform us in such a way that we don't just speak it, we don't just bang people over the heads with it, we don't just give people what they, we think they need, because when we do that, what do we do? We offend. But we live it in such an authentic way We embrace what God has done for us in such a genuine and humble way that when people are around us, very very many times we don't have to say a word because their questions beat us to the punch. Why are you like you are? What in the world is so different about you? I can't put my finger on it, but you are not like everybody around me. Can you please tell me? That is the introduction of the gospel. And that's how we want to live. Amen. Help us. We need to dig into his truth versus moving away from his truth. We need to understand it and speak it and not avoid and hide it. Making sure that we keep clear the main thing, the main thing and what we're living about. Amen? So what does this have to do with Romans? The letter to the Romans has a lot to do with our worldview. It's a doctrinal letter to a specific church living in a very ungodly culture, a culture very much like our own. Rome. The city is Rome. You know Rome. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Rome. Right? It's the it's the Vegas of the of that time. It's actually not even just the Vegas. It's the New York City meets Washington, D.C. meets Vegas. It's everything all in one. It is the center of that that growing, expanding, influential empire, the Roman Empire. It is the hub. It's the capital. It's the place of authority. It's the cosmopolitan place of commerce. It's the place of ideas. It's the place of advancement. Not only... um, Engineering-wise, roads and, and structures and build architectural designs, etc. All, all kinds of incredible advances in society happened in the Roman culture. It was an amazingly intelligent, creative, wealthy culture that was also incredibly brutal and sensual and amoral. It had it all. It had it all. It had everything that humans could accomplish and achieve. It had power. It had influence. It had everything that our world tells us is what we want, right? And yet it had problems, extreme problems. They would, um, they would bring, it started off that they would bring heroes into um, arenas, war heroes, to honor them. And, and crowds would gather to honor the heroes and celebrate them, but then that turned into gladiator battles where um, men would fight to the death um, in these brutal conflicts. And then after that show of violence was not enough, then they would begin to bring slaves and bring people in from other cultures and have them fight and have them being destroyed. And then, the, and as if that were not enough, then they decided, let's not do it 
hand-to-hand or human-to-human. Let's bring lions into it. And let's throw wild animals in there and see wild animals kill people while crowds cheer and chant. And, and that's not enough because we don't like the scum of this culture, the Christians. Let's bring the Christians into the arena. And let's have the lions eat the Christians because they are telling us something about our lives we don't want to hear. It was an ugly culture, powerful, accomplished. But the underbelly was ugly. It was sensual. You don't have to... I'm reading a book now uh, about the Roman Empire, uh, and if you just read about the emperors, it'll make your stomach turn of just how unbelievably given over to sensuality and sexuality and perversion that they were. I won't go into it. But it was a culture that had totally given themselves to whatever kind of pleasure they can imagine. Anybody having kind of uh, twitches about how similar or how close that we are as a culture to everything I've just described? Incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy, incredibly advancing in all of our technology and our creativity, influence throughout the world, propagating or promoting everything that we have that is good and yet that we think is good, but yet sending incredible amounts of bad throughout the world through our perversion and through our licentiousness and morals. We are a culture very similar to Rome, and yet we feel like that we are advancing in such a great place. Romans is written to us. Paul wrote it during a time that I just described, but he could be writing it right now, today. This was the scene when the Holy Spirit moved through Paul to write this letter, addressing the issues of the day, but specifically to the church that was living in Rome. So let's listen to the first 17 chapters and jump into just a few parts of it this morning. We're going to read this whole passage of Scripture. If you want to pull out your Bible, you can. We'll read it in a probably a translation that is different from probably many that are in the room, new, the New Living Translation. But please read it in different translations, especially as we look through it through it the next few weeks, because um, different translations bring out different aspects of this passage of Scripture. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news. And when you see the word good news in this translation... That the word um, that you will see in other translations is gospel. So gospel is uh, translated here, the good news. So God promised his good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. The good news is about the son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey Him, bringing glory to His name. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be His own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in Him is being talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night, 
I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about his son. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. For I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit, just as I have seen among other Gentiles. For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and the uneducated alike. So I'm eager to come to you in Rome, too, to preach the good news. For I'm not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the Scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So let's look real quickly um, at the players of this, this letter that we are going to be studying. And the first player that we want to look at, look at is not my son Samuel. It is, it is Paul. Let's look at this man Paul. Verse, verse 1, the letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle. For those of you who know the story, and for those of you who don't, Paul was a very influential man. He was Jewish. He was um, trained and educated. Um, he, was, he knew everything about God. He was very smart, wise, and well-connected. So well-connected that as the, the, the fledgling Christian church emerged, as it became known that there was this growing population of Jews that were converting to Christianity. And that was very disrupting to, uh, disruptive to the religious um, powers that be in the, in the Jewish community. Um, this sect, this heresy was forming. This heretical sect was emerging. And as a result they began to persecute and try to snuff out this sect before it grew too large or grew too influential. And so there were, there were uh, um, persecutions, I'm sure, every form of per- persecution all the way up to, and we see in Scripture, all the way up to stoning people to death for being followers of Jesus. And, and it says in Scripture and Acts that Paul was one of the chief people who ran around finding Christians so that they could be persecuted, so they could be tried. This was Paul. He was a persecutor of the church. Not just a, a, a bystander, not just somebody on the side who was, I don't really agree with that, but he was one who, who went out to find them and to see that they were dealt with and even at times killed. And then in Acts 9, it says about Paul that he encountered um, the presence of God on his way, on his travels to Damascus. A blinding light showed up And it says in Acts Acts 9, chapter 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, that was his name before it changed to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. And after this happened, Paul's life was radically changed. He met Jesus. He was ushered off by the Holy Spirit for a period of time of learning and understanding who God was about. And he came back from that that school of discipleship by the Holy Spirit 
And he came back as one of the most zealous proclaimers of the good news of Jesus Christ that the world has ever known. Most of the New Testament, most of the uh, the back part of your Bible, if you're unfamiliar with your Bible, but most of the New Testament that talks about Jesus and all that he's done are letters written by Paul to the churches that he helped establish and helped oversee. At the time, the writing of Romans, Paul is in between assignments. His next missionary journey, his last would be to Spain. He's in Corinth when he writes this letter, and he is... Um, on his way to drop off offerings that he's collected th- uh, throughout his, his, his area of ministry, he's collected offerings for the poor in Jerusalem, and he's taking the offerings to Jerusalem, and he's writing to Rome, the church in, Romans, in Rome, and he's saying, I'm looking forward to getting together with you to meet you for the very first time. He's never been to Rome, and we'll look at that a little bit later as we look at this passage of Scripture. He's writing this letter to a church he's never met. And he's saying, I'm looking forward to, to, to stopping off all, along the way on my next journey in Rome. He's also been ministering for about 25 years. This struck me when I was studying it because I've been ministering about 25 years. So I thought, oh my gosh, I am a wimp compared to Paul. <laughs> Paul has been ministering for 25 years, planting churches throughout that whole region. And he is at a point as an aged and wise minister to write down in a treatise form. And that's what you get in Romans. It's such a masterpiece of doctrine. What he has learned and what he would clearly want to communicate to the church about who God is and what this good news is all about. So what you get in this letter is the best of a seasoned church planning missionary who has seen Jesus. Come on. That ought to make you excited about reading Romans. And what does he say about himself? The first thing he says is, I'm a slave to Jesus. Other texts use the word bondservant. This this term is really important because it's not like he has been conscripted without without his choice or choosing. But the word bondservant in that culture would mean this. It would mean that um, one who had been a servant or who had been a slave, at some point that along the way, there would be a release point where they would be released from their obligation or duty. And it was at that point that they could go on and do whatever or work for somebody else, or in some instances, because they so loved, appreciated, or um, saw that this was the, the best deal going for them, they said to their master, thank you for setting us free, but we want to be your bondservant. We want to say that we want to stay with you for life. And when they made that decision, oftentimes their ear would be pierced or there would be some sort of physical demonstration of their verbal communication and their willingness to say, I want to be your servant for life. Paul is saying, I am a bondservant to Jesus. I have met him. I know him, and I have said, till the day I die, whatever you ask of me, wherever you lead, I will go. How many of us in this room could say the same? Not just say it, but live it 
if necessary, not all of us are called, Paul has a pretty dramatic calling, but some of us in this room do as well, and all of us do in the sense that we will face various trials of many kinds, and we will be tested in our faith. And how many of us are willing to say now and then and forevermore, Jesus, I am your bondservant for life. Whatever comes my way, I am willing to do whatever you called me to do. He also says of himself that he's chosen by God to be an apostle, sent out, a sent out one, to establish the kingdom of God and preach the good news. And he says this to establish his authority. I have been chosen by God. God has appointed me to preach to you the good news. And as we receive the letter of Romans as readers of the Holy Word, we too can receive from Paul the affirmation as he declared about himself, I am here to speak to you, and these are the words of life from God. I am speaking as one who has been called. And lastly, we know about Paul just from reading the Scripture, not just exclusively from Romans, but his whole story within the New Testament, that this is one man who loves Jesus. He's not just a bondservant, and he's not just called, but he is in love with Jesus because Jesus changed his life. Philippians 3 verse 8 says this, More than that, I count all things, Paul speaking, I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, but I count them all rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that's derived by the law or working it out through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. You're going to see that little phrase right there is Romans. Not that which comes from the law, but that which comes by faith and belief in Christ alone. Justification by faith alone, one of the premier teachings of Romans. Paul says it every time he speaks, I haven't done anything to earn the merit of God, but Jesus Christ met me on the road to Damascus, and while I was persecuting and killing Christians, he said, I love you, and I want you to serve me. Come on. I can stop right here. If you ever wonder, does God love you? Well, he loved Paul. And Paul says that. Paul said it in the verse that I used for communion. He said, and I, we had, it went on in 1 Corinthians 15, and it talks about everybody who had witnessed Jesus, and it talked about all the apostles and different ones who saw Christ resurrected from the dead. And then Paul said, I, the least of these, saw one who is not worthy to have seen Jesus and to be accepted by him. I killed Christians, Paul said. And Jesus said, you know what? You're just the right person I can use to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Be forgiven and get up and serve me. You and I have no excuse but to be as Paul who is incredibly thankful. He says, um, this righteousness that comes from God is by faith that I may know Him, verse 10, in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. He is saying, I get to do this. I get to do it. I was on a dead-end path and, and my eyes were open and all of a sudden I realized, and, and, and Charlie talked about this when he first preached here, all of a sudden I realized I'm going the wrong way. Yes! I get to turn around and go a different direction and it's filled with life and hope. And it's filled with hope because I have been forgiven. 
and my sins, my ugliness do not count against me as they, I deserve them to count against me. Paul was incredibly thankful. I woke up this morning, I was thinking about this message, and I was, I was praying in my, my living room, and I, it, this doesn't always happen, but when you're a, a person who follows God and you pray, sometimes it does happen. It should happen to all of us every once in a while. It's as if I just had an open heaven. Not, I didn't see anything, but my emotions were just opened up to this truth. Jesus, everything is quiet. The house is still asleep. It's just me and you. And there's no place I'd rather be. I wished I could stay here all morning. Jesus, I love you. I'm so aware of how incredibly privileged I am to not be hung over from a drunken drunk fest the night before, to not be completely condemned by, by choices that I, I don't have to make because you'd set me free by your grace, to not be hopeless about what the future looks like because I know whatever's out there, you're with me. God, I can't believe I have such a good life. I, I wanted to dance, but I didn't want to wake anybody up. So I was doing the Bill Cosby in my living room. God, you're so good. You're so good to me. And he's so good to you. Not just me. He's good to everyone who believes. He's our hero. He's the hero of this story. He's the hero of this book. He's the hero of this Bible. He's the hero of all mankind. He's the hero from the beginning to the end. And every book and every book that will be that's ever been written cannot compare to the glory of Jesus Christ. He's our hero. He's our savior. He's worth living and dying for. He's worth proclaiming. And that gets us to the theme verse of the scripture as we, as we round out. We've got the Paul, we've, we've got Jesus, and we'll, come, we'll, we'll keep on talking about Jesus here. We've got the church that he's writing to. This church is, is made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's made up of, uh, primarily at the time of his writing, it's more Gentile than it is Jewish. Prior to that, it was probably more Jewish because it was probably Roman um, Jewish travelers who were at Pentecost that took it back to Rome. And then... For a period of time, the, 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 the ruler of Rome kicked the Jews out of the city, and so then the church probably came more Gentile, and then the Jews came back into the church. And so most theologians consider Romans as being a letter written primarily to a Gentile-believing church with Jewish believers in it, but also within a culture where Jewish believers and Gentile believers are trying to figure out how do we work together? How do we live together? And that's one of the big themes of Romans is, what does this look like for Gentiles and Jews to be one church. And really what that's saying is, what does it look like for all of us to be one church in God? That this message is for all. Read Romans 1, 16. The theme, I believe the theme verse for all of the letter of, Rome, uh, of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's in the NIV version. I, I, I did it this time because that's the one I memorized it in. 
I am not ashamed. What do we learn? Paul has decided that he is dead in his reputation, in his calling, in his position in life, so as to elevate the most important thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed to tell you in your culture, in your existence, in your dynamic, in your situation, that Jesus Christ is preeminent and needed to be heard by all. I am not ashamed. Shouting figuratively to all, Jesus is your only hope. And it brings power. Hey, listen, it's not just enough for us to understand what God has done. But God's power saves us. Amen? So this passage of Scripture tells us something that's almost in a sense a legal term, that you have been declared this, this whole aspect of becoming righteous in God or being saved. It's not that you have done anything to earn it. And it's not that God has done anything in you for you to earn it. It is a declaration of God in and of itself. Jesus Christ died for you, and if you believe, you are made right with God. It is done. Declared. No righteous work can accomplish it. No good deed. You are declared righteous. But it comes by faith. It comes by believing. What's your only job? Believe. What else do you have to do? Nothing. What do you have to do? Believe. What else do you have to do? Not a single thing. What do you have to do? Believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for your sins. He's alive forevermore, and he offers you to have a relationship with him, to be forgiven, and to be a child of his. Jesus is our Savior. And lastly, we're not ashamed. By faith we believe, declared righteous. It is good news. And what's the last part? For all. For all. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For all who believe. All who believe. All who believe. There is not one person who is outside of the grace and the aim of the salvation of God. Ernest Hemingway tells a story, and the band can come on up as we prepare Respond. Ernest Hemingway tells a story of a Spanish young man named Paco who left his father to live a life of sin in the capital city, capital city of Madrid, very much like the prodigal son story. And after several months of fearing the worst for his son, the father went to Madrid in search of Paco, and he took out an advertisement in the newspaper which said, Paco, so he put an advertisement in the newspaper, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana noon Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa, Paco, put it in the newspaper. Meet me in the square. All's forgiven. Whatever you've done, don't worry about it. I love you. You're forgiven. The next Tuesday, the father went to the hotel, hoping to find his son waiting for him. And when he turned the corner and the hotel came into view, he saw a great crowd of 800 young men gathered named Paco looking for their father. Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me at the square. Papa. Romans is a letter to you and me about Papa saying all is forgiven. 
Come and meet me in the square. Meet with me. Let me have your life. Let's walk together. So what's our response? What are you looking for? What are you looking for in your life right now? Are you looking for hope? Are you looking for freedom? We all long to be loved. We all love to be forgiven. Papa is in a place. Jesus has done the work for you to be forgiven and set free. So there might be some of us in the room today that need that good news. It might be that this message is stirring you with the hope that is to be found or known by those that you live among. I hope that it does. And as we walk through Romans and you understand more and more clearly what the gospel is all about in your life, that you'll walk in freedom, but that you'll also extend that freedom to other people around you with joy and grace.